This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. John Hamer, thank you for joining me in the trenches. It is Hamer, right? It is. That's absolutely spot on, yeah. Uh, because here in South Africa, we can often pronounce it Harmer <laughs> because of our oh, Afrikaans, okay. because of our Afrikaans heritage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it's definitely Hamer. So uh, yeah, you got it absolutely spot on first time. Well, it's great to hear. Uh, how is the information war treating you? Oh, uh, it it never ends, does it? You know, there's always something new, <laughs> something new to pick up on. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for a long, long time, and. Uh, you know, it, every day is different. Every day there is something, uh, you know, some other calamity in the offing yes. or some other incident to report on and or research. It's, yeah, never a dull moment, I think, is the answer. Well, uh, the Titanic is not a dull moment in history, is it? Not at all. It's a very, very interesting, very convoluted story. But, yeah, it's uh, it is fascinating. I did a conversation or I had a conversation recently about um, the assassination of JFK and I was mm -hmm. thinking what event of the 20th century is the largest or the most significant and I think JFK is one of them but I also think the Titanic probably might be right up there because of the collateral um, history. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean the tooth, I mean I, I always, when I, I you know, I, I'm a geopolitical researcher, analyst, author, and public speaker, and I have been for 25 years. And I go all, all around the country um, talk, giving talks. And one of the things that I always say in those talks is that everything is connected. Everything. I, I, I use the analogy of, of the whole of reality being like a 10 million or a 10 billion piece jigsaw jigsaw puzzle and the more pieces you can fit in the clearer the bigger picture becomes and then that enables you then to put in more pieces into that jigsaw puzzle and that has a knock-on effect the more pieces you put in the more you're able to put in and so on and that and that brings a kind of a clarity to the whole the overall geopolitical situation so you know even though the kennedy assassination and and uh, titanic were separated by 50 years they are still deeply rooted in the same conspiracy it's like life as an ecosystem yes exactly yeah 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 well with regards to the titanic i suppose the obvious question is where do we start ah right okay well um i think you know probably the way that i would approach it because it is a uh you know it's quite a an intricate story uh, what I usually do is I usually just try and tell it chronologically obviously you know if you want to interject at any point in time I don't want to feel like I'm hogging the limelight all the time but just you know just feel free to chip in and ask questions um, so kind of I suppose I ought to start at the beginning and and uh, perhaps give a little bit of background to me and my research on this topic yes. first of yes, all that, and, that then, and then idea. just then just start at the very beginning how does let's that do sound? that yeah let's do all it right, right. Right. Well, as I say, uh, I've been a geopolitical researcher, analyst and author and a public speaker for around 25 years now. But the Titanic story always fascinated me ever since childhood because it just seemed so surreal and unbelievable to me. 
And this was what kind of, uh, you know, around uh, 12, 15 years ago, enticed me to look into it a lot more deeply. Um, you know, the background to my research, was, which I did for three years solid, I did f three years full-time research on this story. So, you know, I don't think I've missed anything out, but there may be other stuff lurking in the background somewhere that I have missed out. But obviously it's very difficult to do to do this this story because it is a big story justice in the space of a couple of hours or whatever time we've got um but i'll do my best it, you know there there is a lot of information there to impart and i probably won't get a chance to do it all full justice but i'll do i'll do my best so background to my research i researched it for three years between 2009 2012 i ended up writing two books on the topic um I looked at the, there were two inquiries after the event, the American inquiry came first and the British inquiry. I looked at the, the transcripts of those inquiries. I looked at the public records of the ship, the actual yard that built the ships, the Harland and Wolf Yard in Belfast in Ireland. I looked at various archives. I spent hours and hours trawling through microfiche and contemporary newspapers in libraries up and down the country. Obviously, the internet, which is a ubiquitous source for uh, this kind of information. And I also looked at uh, the, the, the transcripts of the communications between all the Marconi wireless operators of all the ships in the North Atlantic on that fateful night. Now, the only place where you can find those transcripts is actually in a at a place called the Bodleian Library in Oxford in England. So I spent about three days in there trawling through all these Marconi wireless transcripts, which, by the way, are not available on the Internet. There are, there are portions of them that are uh, available, but not all of them. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about. Just to get put that in perspective, I once did a four-hour podcast on the subject and didn't cover everything. So, yeah. Um, now... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, believe it or not, that's true. It was the middle of the night as well because it was on the west coast of America, and, <laughs> and they were eight hours, uh, eight hours behind me. So it was uh, like something like from one in the morning till five in the morning, or something stupid. But that's a well, I'm not ago. in a rush. So start at the start. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'll just, I'll just tell you an interesting little story actually mm. before I start. Connect, obviously, connected to this. Um, in about 2012, I did a, a stand-up talk on the Titanic, a PowerPoint presentation at a venue in England, and they made a, a YouTube presentation out of it. And it, I believe this is the one you looked at, is it? Um, yes, yeah. yes, that's, that's the and one. And it had, within about three months, it had, had half a million views. It's still only got half a million views, but that's YouTube for you. Mm. Um, but I was actually contacted by someone from America. Uh, a lady phoned me and said, I'm a film director in Hollywood. I would very much like to make a film of your version of the Titanic story. I said, okay. So we chatted for a bit. And then she, you know, we had a few phone calls. She invited me over there, spent uh, a couple of weeks over there with her. And we went around various Hollywood producers trying to get funding. Of course, there was no... Um, uh, uh, no real interest apart from one guy who said yeah it sounds good but it, we have to have a book so I came home and I spent about three months and I rattled off RMS Olympic in about three months flat and uh, and I sent him the transcript and he said no 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 it's got to be a novel so I went right back to the drawing board 
<laughs> so I actually I've never written a novel before and I'll right. promise you I'll never write another one because it's just not my thing at all but I wrote another novel then called um, Titanic's Last Secret which is based on RMS Olympic sent him the transcript and he said yeah thanks very much it's very interesting but you know we're not going to go ahead sorry but that that was the story of how the two books came about so yeah it was a, it was an interesting time anyway on, on with the story. <laughs> <laughs> so, as most people know, um, the the incident, and I will call it the incident, happened at 11.40 p.m. local time on Sunday the uh, 14th of April, 1912, and the ship sank approximately two hours and 40 minutes later. Um, now, the interestingly enough, the, the apocryphal official story was a book written by a guy called Walter Lord, who was a CIA agent in the early 1950s. And this was called, this book was called A Night to Remember. Now, A Night to Remember became a very popular book and it, and it also became a very popular feature film uh, starring some quite famous actors in the Wait, 1950s. Wait, a CIA agent? Exactly. This is what I'm just going to come on. Yeah, okay. Walter Lord was a CIA agent. So, You've kind of preempted me a little bit there because I was just going to say this begs the question, what the heck was a CIA agent doing writing a story about a shipwreck 40 years earlier? So that intrigued me for a start. And, you know, his story has become the apocryphal version of events. Okay, everything that you believe, you know, and everyone out there listening believes they know about the Titanic. Trust me, came from that book and that film. Okay, that is the actual official version of events, all of which are totally, totally distorted from reality. And we'll come on to that as we progress, obviously. So I I found that all rather strange. Um, And, uh, you know, my subsequent research bore out my suspicions that actually it was all not as it was portrayed at all. There are two strands to the story, and we're going we're gonna to flip in and out of those different strands. So do bear with me. It might get a little bit complicated, but if you if you're having trouble following it, by all means stop me, and we'll uh, and we'll go back a step, and I'll, I'll I'll try and explain it a little bit more clearly. Okay. So th- this all began. The story began in 1908. Now J.P. Morgan. Uh, whose name still exists to this day in the banking organization, the banking conglomerate that bears his name. He was head of that huge corporation of that same name and also the ultimate owner of the White Star shipping line to which Titanic belonged. Now, in 1908, as I say, he decided to build three, not, not one, not two, but three luxury liners, all identical with a mandate of becoming the most luxurious ships in the world. And these were to be, in order, the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Britannic. So, three ships, almost, but not quite identical, were to be built. So he commissioned the Harland and Wolf shipyard in Belfast to commence construction in 1908. Now, a massive, and I mean massive, investment of money was required. And this was, this was financed by J.P. Morgan himself personally. And it was a huge gamble. This, this plan, if it was to succeed, depended on absolutely everything going right, right from the start and with no glitches. Because, it, you know, it was, it was uh, such a tentative financial plan that um, if anything went wrong, 
And as we'll see, it did. But if anything went wrong, then the whole enterprise was in complete jeopardy. And Morgan stood to lose an absolute fortune. Okay, so RMS Olympic was the first of the sister ships to be built at the Harland and Wolf Shipyard in Belfast. And this was launched in 1911. But unfortunately for Morgan, uh, she had several serious accidents. Four, in fact, all before the launch of Titanic. This was while Titanic was under construction. So in other words, all of this happened in the first few months of Olympic's life. First of all, accident so, number so, one. So, sorry, so, yep. so, no, the no, Olympic, so the Olympic was already doing a couple voyages. Yeah, yeah. Olympic was already, while Titanic was being built, Olympic, Olympic was launched about a year before Titanic. Right. Okay. But Titanic was in the process of construction at this point in time. So on, on its maiden voyage, Olympic, it actually collided with a, a tug in New York Harbor. And uh, it destroyed the tug, obviously, because it was the biggest ship in the world at that time. White Star Line was sued. Fortunately, no one died. But, and it was rel a relatively minor accident. But, you know, nevertheless, significant. Then the second one, a few weeks later, it ran over a sunken wreck as it, as it was leaving New York, which caused severe damage to its propellers. And it returned back across the Atlantic at around half speed, but suffered further vibrational damage due to the imbalance caused by the propeller damage. Two propellers had to be replaced. Okay, the third one shortly afterwards again, um, she hit a sandbank, ran aground, and threw a propeller. Now, throwing a propeller means that the propeller came off. Okay, so it lost the propeller. And this also had to be replaced, but already having used both spares, they had to borrow one from the Titanic, who was under construction. And this is significant. This is a significant point, and we'll return to that much later in the story. So if you can, just make a note and remind me to return to that propeller issue when we get to talking right. about the aftermath. I'm going to make a note right now. Thank you. Yeah, because it is, it is really important, this bit, actually. And then it, finally, in September 1911, which was only about uh, six months after it had been launched, the fourth accident, and this was a serious one, Olympic was involved in a massive high-speed collision with a British warship, a British battleship called HMS Hawk. And this is known in Titanic circles as, as the Hawk incident. So after leaving Southampton uh, on the south coast of England and preparing to turn westwards, traveling clockwise around the Isle of Wight, which is an island just off the coast of uh, south coast of England, um, she hit the uh, HMS Hawk, or rather the HMS Hawk hit her and created a massive hole and the damage was extensive. Okay, so much so that the voyage had to be abandoned, the passengers were ferried off and sent back to Southampton. And the ship itself actually limped back to Southampton to be patched up. It took two weeks to patch it up. And from there, it had to go back to Harland and Wolf Shipyard in Belfast for full repairs because uh, at that shipyard, that was the only place where there was a dry dock big enough to take her because that's where she was built and it was the biggest ship in the world, okay. So once they got her back to Belfast and did a complete uh, examination of the damage, it, they, they realized, Helen and Wolf realized that she was in far worse shape than they originally thought. And worse still, 
even worse news was to come for Morgan because the Royal Navy inquiry, every accident involving a Royal Navy ship has to, has to have a Royal Navy inquiry. Okay. The Royal Navy inquiry into the accident found Olympics crew and therefore the White Star Line culpable. Now, it, that was actually nonsense. It was definitely the HMS Orc and her crew that were at fault. But nevertheless, of course, the Royal Navy found in favour of themselves. So White Star Line and therefore Morgan was thus liable for many millions of pounds of expenses. And millions of pounds in those days were a lot of money, you know, because we're talking 110 years ago, 111 years ago. Many, many millions of pounds for expenses for repairs to both ships because they had to pay for the damage to Hawk as well. Mm. Plus, and even possibly even more significantly, the loss of massive amounts of revenues while Olympic was out of action. So this put JP Morgan in a very precarious position. Now, amongst many, many other relatively minor issues, the main problem was that Olympic's keel was bent and distorted out of shape. And the, the, the estimated the repairs were going to cost more than to build a new ship from scratch. I spoke to, in the process of my research, I spoke to several uh, mariners, marine type people, and they all said that a twisted or a bent keel on a ship equals a total wreck. Um, so, 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 so that would yeah. mean sort of like having a skew chassis on a car. Correct. Yeah. It's, okay. it's like you can't, you can't be in an accident and the whole thing being mm. bent out of shape. Uh, you might as well scrap the car and buy another one because it would just cost far too much to mm. repair. So, yeah, damage, Olympic was White Star realized that Olympic was damaged beyond economic repair. And significantly, she was now uninsurable. So she was therefore an insurance write off. And White Star Line had no option at this point to declare her officially as a wreck, which they did. You know, they, they declared the ship as a, as a wreck. It actually did happen. Um, so, as I say, an insurance write-off. And, you know, please don't take my word for this. Documentary proof of this is actually available if you know where to look. Okay. So, also, as I say, also, due to the serious damage that uh, Olympic sustained, she was unable to ply her trade back and forth across the Atlantic. Uh, so, couldn't even begin to pay her way. The bankruptcy of White Star Line and Holland and Wolf Shipyard was now definitely on the cards. And so at this point, Morgan and his uh, co-conspirators then hatched a plot. And the plot was to kill two birds with one stone, solve the White Star financial problems and remove opposition to the Federal Reserve in one simple move. Now, I'll come on to the 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 Federal Reserve issue, which is the other strand to the story very shortly. But let's concentrate on the um, the ship for the moment. Okay, so the plot involved patching up the wrecked Olympic as best they could, bracing the twisted keel with metal struts, which again is quite provable that they happened, because when Robert Ballard, who allegedly discovered the Titanic wreck site in 1985, he, did, he actually didn't, but that's another story altogether. He was puzzled to find these struts, which, of course, didn't appear on the construction blueprints. But nevertheless, he made it public that these struts were there. So we know that that is a fact. So it's actually possible to see the repairs to Olympic's superstructure and steel plates in some pictures of Titanic 
prior to the maiden voyage of Titanic. So I think, you know, this is probably giving the game away now where we're going with this. The scene is now set for a remarkable and elaborate scam, the switching of the identities of the two ships. They almost completed Titanic and they almost wrecked Olympic. And this fact is corroborated by many Belfast ship workers' families, descendants of the original ship workers at the time, who have had the story passed down to them through their families. Because what I did was I put a, I put a, a small ad in the Belfast Evening newspaper um, in about, I think it was around about 2010. And uh, three people came forward, answered my ad, uh, and none of them knew each other. Okay, so they weren't, it wasn't as though they were in collusion with each other. I met them all individually, separately. I went over to Belfast, met them, and they all told, told me the same story. And the story was that, yes, our grandfather, great-grandfather, whatever it was, has told us all, you know, told us all, and it's passed down through the family that the ships have switched. And if they ever breathed the word of it outside the dockyard, then not only would they never work again anywhere, but neither would any of their families. So, yeah. So, I mean, wow. it, it's, it's pretty firm corroboration that this is, this is actual fact. So, you know, this, this then begs us the question of how, how it was carried out. Okay. So, after Olympic's accident with HMS Hawk, she spent many, many weeks in the shipyard at Belfast, and the changes were made piecemeal, little by little. The main differences in the two ships were being eradicated and making them as identical as possible. Although it wasn't 100% successful and practical and viable. Um, and of course, that because of that fact, it, it wasn't 100% perfect. This is plot to switch the ships has been discovered through meticulous research. So there are various photographs showing them in various stages of transition, um, some of which are ambiguous, but some of which actually definitely point to switch being made. And then on the one final weekend, the last final, the final changes were made, and that involved hiring a, a small crew of insiders, um, about 20 men who changed over the lifeboats, the menus and the letterheads, and of course the nameplates of the ships. As I said, it was carried out by a small crew of insiders, and these men were paid £100, which in those days represented a year's wages. Okay, so it doesn't sound very much these days, but it, and, it was a year's wages. And did they do this in broad daylight, or was it done during the night? They did, they did it in broad daylight over a weekend, and people say to me, John, how could they do that? How would nobody notice that this was going on? Yes. Right, okay, well, Howland and Wolf Shipyard was basically a labyrinth of workshops, dozens of ships at various stages of construction, under repair. Nobody would notice any particular surreptitious goings-on in any different any particular part of the uh, this vast labyrinthine many, many acre dockyard of Harland and Wolf. There was all sorts of activity going on. Nobody nobody would have noticed. And even if they did, they were scared to death to say anything because, you know, there were, in those days, it was very easy to cover up. There was no, you know, uh, no mass media such as there is today, no social media. You know, there were no roving crews of TV reporters going around looking for looking for sensational stories. It was just one word, guy's word against another. So, and, and and in those days, of course, people were were much more willing to accept authority than they are today. And you know, any 
any kind of uh, stepping out of line or or blowing the whistle would have would have resulted in serious consequences for anyone who tried to do that. So people were much more tightly controlled and and coerced and threatened by loss of jobs. So you know that's kind of how it was done, I believe. Okay. And so also, yeah. I and also, I suppose if it's in broad daylight, uh, your your levels of suspicion are a lot lower. Correct. Correct. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yes, mm. indeed. Yeah. So the, these people would have been threatened with loss of livelihood in the event of them spilling the beans. So, right, significantly, <clears throat> go back to the beginning of the Olympic when it, when it was actually launched and its maiden voyage. Its maiden voyage was in June 1911, which is about, which is just under a year before Titanic's. And interestingly enough, there was no fanfare at all. This was the biggest ship in the world. And I only managed to find uh, uh, one or two very tiny contemporary newspaper reports about the the maiden voyage of Olympic. Now, contrast that with, with Titanic, which was the second one off the production line. And really, such a, a huge uh, hullabaloo and fanfare should have been reserved for the first one off the of the production line but that was absolutely not the case it was it was it was uh, titanic that that was that hogged all the limelight in that respect and i'll come on to that in a, in a short while as to why that would be okay so titanic was actually launched in december 11 renamed the olympic and work continued on the original olympic which was now the titanic to make her seaworthy enough for one dramatic final voyage but does this does this include the propeller story, which you asked me to remind you about? Not yet. We're not there yet. This, not is, yet. this is this is going to be right at the end. Okay. Oh, okay. Right. So yeah. So um, so the, the, there were lots of photographs of the two in various stages of both official and unofficial changes that even so-called Titanic experts struggle to separate the two from the pictures. Of course, most photographs in those days had no dates. There was no date stamping in those days. And if surreptitious changes were being made alongside official ones, then the conclusion has to be that the photos prove nothing at all. However, in my book, RMS Olympic, there are a series of photographs that I believe do prove the switch. Okay, again, but they're in the they're in the uh, in the book. Now, in the UK at that time, all passenger ships before they were allowed to carry passengers had to have what was called a Board of Trade Certificate of Seaworthiness. And that, and to gain that Certificate of Seaworthiness, that involved a, a sea trial on open seas, which involved manoeuvres like stopping, starting, turning circles, manoeuvrability, adequate number of lifeboats, etc., etc., other safety features. And they had to pass this to get the Certificate of Seaworthiness in order to be licensed to carry passengers. Now... Okay, so on the uh, Wednesday, the 10th of April, 1912, four days before the incident, Titanic left Southampton docks on the south coast of England on its maiden voyage headed for New York amidst huge celebrations. Um, it was to call it, make, make two, two stops, one at Cherbourg in France, and one at Queenstown in Ireland, and it had 2,200 pa passengers and crew on board. Now, people believe that the, the, the Titanic was full. Actually, it wasn't. It, was, it wasn't even half full. Okay. Um, and that is significant, and I'll, and I'll come on to explain that why that is in a moment. 
Now, let's talk a little bit about the transit crew who were responsible for the safe passage of the liner from Belfast docks to Southampton to begin its maiden voyage. So in other words, the 600 mile sea trip from Belfast to Southampton in order for it to begin its maiden voyage with passengers. Now that that had to have a, a transit crew who were obviously responsible for the safe passage of it, you know, during that 600 mile journey. Interestingly enough, only two of those transit crew signed on for the maiden voyage. Now, the most interesting aspect of that is that for the previous six weeks, there had been a coal strike in England and there were lots of liners laid up and lying empty because obviously all liners in those days ran on coal. You know, they were steam driven and the steam engines were fed by coal furnaces. Okay. Um, and at the time of Titanic sailing, the coal strike had been going on, going on for six weeks. Pa not only were passengers desperate for berths, but also uh, seafarers, you know, seamen and women were desperate for work because if you weren't working, you didn't get paid. There was no such thing as, you know, uh, being paid if you weren't actually working. The, the, interestingly enough, the the pay of of uh, the seafarers in those days it stopped for the minute you got off the ship, and you didn't start getting paid again the, until the minute you actually climbed the gangplank back onto your next ship. <clears throat> Excuse me. So there were thousands of people out to work in those days. There was no social security, no no government support. If you're out of work, you had to rely on charity from family and friends. So people should have been desperate for work. And yet this transit crew did not sign on for the maiden voyage. Now, why would that be? Well, obviously they knew something that no one else did. They knew that, that line, there was something really strange about that liner. They knew. Uh, sorry, John, how, how big is the transit crew? Um, I'm not absolutely 100% sure, but it was like a skeleton crew. Obviously, they didn't need all the stewards and stewardesses mm. and all that, that stuff. It was just the engineers and the stokers and the, you know, the, the obviously the deck crew as well. I would estimate probably 100. And only two signed up? Only two signed up. Good and heavens. the two that signed up jump ship at the second stop in, in Ireland. So zero were actually on the voyage? Absolutely. Absolutely. That is that's incredible. Yeah. So as I say, there was a there's an ongoing coal strike. Passengers were absolutely crying out for for voyages back to to America. Um, uh, they were desperate, and yet Titanic was only half full. What had, what was going on there was that the White Star Line were deliberately restricting the number of passengers passengers to make the evacuation, because they knew what was going on here, to make the evacuation more manageable. Right. OK, we'll come on to that a little bit more a little bit later. But let's continue with the story. Five days before Titanic sailed, there was a ship called the Californian, which had departed for New York from London in the midst of this nationwide coal strike shortage with no passengers, despite this huge demand for transatlantic passengers and no cargo, which is really strange in itself. Um, 
except for the only cargo it carried was 3,000 woolen sweaters and 3,000 woolen blankets. Okay. As I said, Titanic sailed only half full when there was this huge demand for places. Uh, first class passengers that had been hoping to transfer to Titanic from other ships that were, were you know, uh, laid up were only offered second class cabins. This was, in my view, it was an attempt to keep numbers manageable because who amongst first class, any self-respecting first class passenger in those days would definitely not travel second class. I mean, that would just be so beneath them, it would be untrue. So, yeah, that's why I think they, they deliberately offered them second class berths just to put them off. So let's go back to the Californian again, the ship that left five days before the Titanic. On the evening of the 14th, which was the, the evening of the incident, the Californian actually stopped dead in the middle of the ice field where Titanic was due to pass shortly and drifted with the ice whilst keeping all its boilers fully fired. Now, three experienced transatlantic sea captains gave evidence at the American inquiry that it was not, not common practice to stop or even slow down in ice fields as icebergs are extremely visible and thus avoidable, even at normal cruising speeds. So the point of that is that um, Californians stopped dead, floated with the drifts, were drifted with the ice, even though that was not normal practice to do so. Why? Uh, because uh, icebergs are very, very visible. Even no, no, no. I mean, sorry, why do they stop? Well, let me come on to that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So it, it, it was, imagine the, the scene, the, the ice field where Titanic was due to pass shortly, the Californian stopped dead, drifting with the ice, all boilers fully fired. Right. So then obviously Sunday, the 14th of April at 11.40 p.m. local time, Titanic allegedly hits an iceberg and sinks three hours later with the loss of 1,500 lives. Was there even an iceberg there? were icebergs around but whether she hit an iceberg i think that is absolutely uh unlikely okay now interestingly titanic's turning circle was such that it should have easily have been able to spot the iceberg in good time and avoid it officially the official story says it wasn't spotted until it was too late but in reality, it was actually seen four miles away, which would have given them, them plenty of time to avoid an iceberg. OK, that's all, all rather strange, of course. Now, people say to me, oh, come on, John, we know that, you know, that there are passenger reports of the of the decks of the Titanic after the event full of ice obviously came from the iceberg. Well, no, I don't think it did. Um, I don't think it did come from the iceberg. I think what happened was after uh, uh, at the point of the incident, whatever that incident was, the engines were abruptly slammed into reverse. So they slammed the engines into reverse. This was a very cold night. It was probably one of the coldest nights of the year on the North Atlantic. Uh, the temperature was well below freezing. There was copious, am copious amounts of ice on all the on all the. Uh, the deck structures, you know, the, there was a massive wireless aerial on Titanic, which went the whole length of the ship, uh, all the masts, all the deck outbuildings, absolutely caked in ice. So I believe that stopping the engines, or sorry, reversing the engines suddenly, sticking them in reverse, actually caused the ship to stop suddenly, 
and shook loose all this ice which was lying about and which the apocryphal tales tell us young lads were playing football with it you know so yeah i'm sure there was i'm sure there was ice there but there you know i, I there are there's circumstantial evidence to say that it didn't hit an iceberg and that's quite easy to uh, to corroborate because on on ships of that era uh when they sailed the forward two lifeboats on the starboard side and on the port side were always swung out over the edge okay and the reason they did was this was in case of someone falling in the sea man overboard and they could launch the lifeboats much more quickly if they were already swung out so they always used to sail with the lifeboats swung out now if they if it had hit an iceberg on the starboard side the right side um then the that at that that uh, that lifeboat that was the, the the front lifeboat on the starboard side would have either been knocked off or severely damaged. There's no question about that. In actual fact, there was no damage to that lifeboat at all. It was used successfully in the rescue mission. So again, that's just circumstantial evidence, but I believe it points to the fact that there was no iceberg. Uh, well, certainly none that that hit the ship. Um, yeah, and so the, the damage to Titanic was very strange. The steel plates apparently had a, a 15 centimeter wide puncture that at some places penetrated 1.6 meters into the inner skin of the ship. And now when you think about a an ice a piece of ice or a or a, a, an ice outcrop on a on an iceberg of that shape 1.6 meters long and 15 centimeters wide you know what kind of a crazy piece of ice would that have to be and would it have been strong enough to penetrate one inch thick steel <clears throat> I, I severely doubt that seriously doubt that that would have been a very very bizarrely shaped iceberg to achieve that and that outcrop of ice if it did exist would surely have snapped off in contact with the steel but of course it didn't. It allegedly created a gash more than 200 feet long in the uh, ship's superstructure. Um, so let's move on a little, little bit now to the second strand of the story. In my book, RMS Olympic, I describe a, 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 a significant connection between the sinking of the Titanic and the formation of the Federal Reserve Bank the following year in the US in 1913. Now, for those who are not aware, the Federal Reserve Bank is the American Central Bank. It is uh, the the the, uh, the bank was formed to usurp the creation of money from the American uh, federal government at the time. And it was a series of private banking organizations that, that fought tooth and nail to have this happen uh, in order for them to make substantial profits which is exactly what they're doing to this day. So it was it was a plan to uh, usurp the creation of money from the American government. Okay, and this and, is exactly what's still going on. Sorry. And, yeah. the, and and let me guess, the usual suspects were involved in the creation yes, of the of Federal course. Reserve. Yeah, yeah. J.P. Morgan was involved. Um, you know, he was he was one of the prominent men. Um, there were in 1910, actually, so a couple of years pr prior to the Titanic incident. Uh, several, seven prominent men, I won't name them all, um, but they represented all the various financial interests. They met incognito on a, at a place called Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia, USA. 
and this was to hatch this plan to usurp this power to create money from the government and the result of this was to be the federal reserve bank which is equivalent to any central bank you know in, in england it's the bank of england uh, blah 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 you know mm. central banks are the, the controlling banks so but this was not without strong opposition from certain mega rich people um but the one of the prime movers, as I say, behind the Federal Reserve Plan was, was J.P. Morgan himself, who also, as we learned earlier on, he owned the White Star shipping line to which Titanic belonged. So there were four specifically very extreme, very wealthy men who were totally opposed to the Federal Reserve Plan. Um, they, these were a guy called uh, John Jacob Astor, uh, Benjamin Guggenheim, Isidore Strauss, and Charles Lindbergh Sr. Now, that Charles Lindbergh name may be familiar to some people. He was actually the father of the, uh, the of Charles Lindbergh Jr., who was the first man to fly the Atlantic solo. Um, and this wasn't, they, they weren't opposed because of any kind of altruism on their part for the common people, but it was because they knew that the Federal Reserve Plan would mean soaring inflation, which of course it does because they create money from out of thin air and you know out, out of nothing and it creates inbuilt debt and this they knew that this would severely impact their own fortunes so they were vehemently opposed to it um and they these four men had created a strong resistance movement on the east coast of the united states which was beginning to win the battle against the federal reserve conspirators now interestingly enough three of those men died on the titanic coincidence well you decide um so this is where i i mentioned earlier the hyped up maiden voyage of the olympic uh, sorry of the titanic which if you remember i said that you know the, the olympic there was barely a murmur in the press about the the maiden voyage of the olympic even though it was the biggest ship in the world at that time but strangely enough for the second one we had this hyped up you know, it was emblazoned across all the newspapers, all the British newspapers, and maybe some of the American ones too. I'm not sure about that. Um, you know, the, the huge fanfare about the the maiden voyage of this this wonderful liner, uh, and I believe that that was how Morgan, part of Morgan's plan to lure great numbers of wealthy and prominent people into this hyped-up maiden voyage. Uh, oh, by the way, Morgan actually was due to sail on the maiden voyage but he mysteriously failed to show at southampton docks in time for the departure of the ship along with around 50 of his friends and colleagues so is this perhaps how he lured uh, astor guggenheim and strauss aboard don't forget these were his mortal enemies they were they were opposed to his uh, you know his grant scheme of the federal reserve bank so did he, he did he actually lure them by personal invite and by booking a passage uh, amongst himself, sorry, for himself, um, you know, and then failing to show, of course. Yeah, so how was the incident facilitated and how did they expect to pull off the deception? Well, first of all, I don't think it was an accident at all. I believe that the captain of the Californian, the ship that was waiting in the ice field for Titanic to show, I believe that Stanley Lord, who was captain of the Californian was in on the plot. Now he worked for, and Californian was part of the Red Star Line, which was a sister line to White Star Line, 
and was also owned by JP Morgan. Interestingly, several years previously, Stanley Lord had successfully evacuated 2,000 people from a ship in under an hour in a military exercise. So perhaps they saw him as the perfect man for the job. So, okay, okay, Stanley, you're hired. I do believe that it was the intention to save most of the passengers and allow a select few to become victims. And, you know, specifically the three aforementioned opponents to the Federal Reserve conspiracy. Uh, but it was just to cover up that disposal. I think if they'd, you know, organised, as these people tend to do, three separate accidents for three particularly prominent people, I think that would have raised too many eyebrows. So I think, as I say, Morgan saw this as an opportunity to kill two, two birds with one stone, get rid of the wrecked Olympic, claim the insurance, and also to dispose of his opposition. Wait, so 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 so, yep. so the Californian was was floating in that same region. Yes, he was. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll come on to that bit now. And the actual idea was that, that the Californian would be standing by, complete with her three thousand blankets and three thousand sweaters to pick up the survivors. Um, several passengers said afterwards, and this, these were in contemporary newspaper reports, but have somehow magically disappeared from uh, from more recent reports. Um, that several passengers said that they'd actually been told by White Star Line staff after the emergency that the Californian was on its way to pick them up, right? So White Star Line officers and staff told, let this sink in, that, that, that told passengers that the Californian was on its way to pick them up. Yet, I know from analyzing the, the, uh, the Marconi wireless messages that took place, Californian, Californian was totally incommunicado, 19 miles away with its wireless switched off and beyond visible contact at that point. And there'd been no communications between Californian and Titanic at all at that point, or indeed ever. So wow. how did they know unless it was part of a prearranged plot? Yeah, as I say, it's it's, it's uncertain as to whether she actually hit the iceberg or an iceberg. I don't. I wouldn't like to uh, speculate as to how it was sunk. Maybe she was scuttled. Maybe she was de deliberately steered uh, into a, another ship, perhaps, because or sunk by explosives. Strategic players explosive, possibly. Um, one eyewitness swore blind that it's seen what he described as a yellow funnel ship directly alongside at the time of the incident, which, you know, totally contradicts the official story. This is known as the Yellow Funnel Steamer Mystery. This ship was seen in the vicinity of, of Titanic at, at, at the time by of the sinking by crew members of, of the Californian. Okay, and indeed, when the Carpathia, which was the ship that actually picked up all the passengers uh, from the lifeboats, uh, when the Carpathia picked those up, there was a, it also gathered all the lifeboats together and towed the lifeboats back to New York. But amongst those lifeboats was another lifeboat, which was totally unidentified, had a different livery to Titanic's lifeboats. It, was, it wasn't the same design or shape as Titanic's lifeboat. And of course, again, that's covered up. But did that lifeboat come from the, the Yellow Funnel steamer? We'll never know. So yeah, 
afterwards, Carpathia sailed, steamed 58 miles to pick up the survivors. It took it around three hours. Uh, but of course, you know, most people who were in the water at that point, because everyone knows there weren't enough lifeboats, uh, and only 705 people out of 2,200 survived. Uh, interestingly, Carpathia was fitted out like a hospital ship and had seven doctors on board. Very strange. I can't even begin to speculate on that at all, but that is the case. It's just, it's just coincidence. Well, it's just coincidence, yeah, of course, yeah. And even at the time, both both inquiries, the American and British, were widely thought to be whitewashers. Uh, no change there, then. You know, there were no witnesses called from the passenger contingent, uh, except for the Gordon family of the famous gin company, Gordon's Gin. No witnesses were allowed to give personal evidence and were strictly forbidden from speaking, other than to give simple answers to direct questions without elaboration. And when questioned by the press afterwards, Captain Lord of the Californian said, and I quote, I am not allowed to give out state secrets. You will have to ask those in the office. And that was his only comment on the matter. What he meant by state secrets, no one knows. Okay. Uh, upon arrival of the surviving crew members, Back in England, two weeks after the disaster, they were all illegally detained in a holding pen in Plymouth Docks without access to legal or union representation. And they were coerced into signing a document that they believed was the Official Secrets Act. Now, the Official Secrets Act is a, is a UK government thing which states that, you know, if you breathe a word of anything that, you know, about this incident... Um, then, you know, the consequences will be severe and will include jail time. So, yeah, as I say, did she really hit an iceberg? There were only five eyewitnesses. Um, one of, only one of them was of the officer class, and that was uh, William Murdoch, the first officer. Uh, there, were two, there were two lookouts in the crow's nest, the helmsman and one other ordinary seaman. And significantly, in my view, Murdoch allegedly committed suicide in the aftermath of the collision, leaving as the only witnesses four working class guys who could easily have been kept quiet through threats to their and their families' future livelihoods. In fact, the um, uh, the uh, the helmsman was actually immediately, and this is a connection with your country was actually immediately posted to South Africa to become harbour master at Cape Town. This is just an ordinary working class guy on a ship suddenly sure. became a harbour master in Cape Town Harbour. Nice and far away as well. Nice and far away, you know, I would imagine with the salary high enough to, you know, to keep him quiet, basically. So... Was Titanic set up by Captain Smith? Captain uh, Edward Smith was the captain of Titanic. Was, was it set up by him on the orders of J.P. Morgan to enter this ice field at high speed um, with the intent of ramming her with this yellow funnel steamer, which could well have been an icebreaker of some kind in order to provide a, a plausible cover story? Um, you know, the kill two birds through one stone scenario, collect the insurance payout for the wrecked Olympic and also to rid the Federal Reserve conspirators of their powerful enemies. 
Interestingly, there were six significant deaths amongst the, um, the, uh, the, the officer class on Titanic. Captain Smith, who was obviously in charge of the ship. Chief Officer Wilde, who was the second in command. First Officer Murdoch, who I've just mentioned, who committed suicide. Those were the three most senior guys on the ship. Of course, then there were, you, you had the, um, the, the three stooges, Guggenheim, Strauss and Astor. Um, yeah, the other strange thing about the, the deaths of Guggenheim, Strauss, and Astor is that their, their bodies were never found. Well, no, I tell a lie, Astor's body was found. But the most significant aspect of that is that something like 98% of first-class passengers survived, yet none of that trio did. Okay, 98% of first-class passengers survived. Those three did not. Yeah. There's no real eyewitness evidence of what happened to them. According to the official legend, none of them attempted to escape. Captain Smith allegedly decided to go down with the ship. Murdoch allegedly shot himself. Why? Guggenheim allegedly, and this is a you know apocryphal story that we see in a lot of the Titanic movies and documentaries, he actually said, he actually refused a life jacket and, and said, we are dressed in our best and prepared to go down like gentlemen. Astor apparently just walked away from the scene, never to be seen again, after being denied access to a lifeboat. And we're told that Strauss and his wife retired to their stateroom to await death together peacefully. All very romantic and melodramatic stuff, not to mention extremely convenient. Now, it's highly significant to me that Guggenheim, Astor and Strauss were all well known to be opponents of the Federal Reserve, and significantly, they were also the most most well known of the victims. Very, very few of whom, as I've already said, were first class passengers. So the upshot of it was Morgan got his insurance payout, and the Federal Reserve came to pass the following year with little or no resistance, thus enabling the elite to begin the next phase of their grand plan. Um, you know, the, the, the first step of which was engineering the outbreak of World War One. The Federal Reserve was absolutely, definitely the, the you know, the, the way that they funded World War One. They could not have funded World War One without the Federal Reserve. And World War One, you know, most people find this absolutely crazy. You know, they think that I'm, I'm an absolute lunatic when I say this. But World War One had been planned as, as early as 1890. But of course, the finance wasn't there at that time. But the Federal Reserve provided that. I think you, I think you're right. I read something about Cecil Rhodes um, being part of that um, setup right. for World War One. Right. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Rhodes was uh, very much involved in in all sorts of shenanigans. You know, right. as you know, in in Southern Africa. And uh, mm. yeah, I mean, he was he was a very shady character. Was old Cecil, so, as well as being very rich. <laughs> yeah. Now the British government at the time was. Uh, was of the Liberal Party, and that was headed by a guy called Herbert Asquith. And I believe that these were all complicit in this little scheme as well, because they knew that if Olympic had to be scrapped, then Harland and Wolf and White Star Line would have gone too. It's almost certain that Morgan would have cut his losses and pulled out, and the damage to the British economy, the unemployment figures would have been sky high, 30,000 alone at Harland and Wolf, plus a similar number at White Star several more thousand associated dependent industries than the Liberals, who had a very, very tiny majority uh, in the House of Commons, would surely have faced a humiliating defeat in the next election. So I believe that, that uh, Asquith was complicit in that as well. Now, 
Titanic. Just, Sorry. just, bef- yeah, just before you, just before you continue, there's a yep. message uh, from uh, PJ who's currently watching, and he says Albert Pike wrote out the story of three world wars already in the 1890s. Correct. Yeah, it was actually he actually sent a letter in the 1870s to a guy called Giuseppe Mazzini, who was the founder of the mafia. And in that letter, he outlined, as, as the listener says, he outlined three world wars that would take place. The first one was to destroy the royal families of Europe, which is exactly what happened. The second one was to um, create a, 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 a Jewish homeland, which again is exactly what happened with the financial of Israel immediately after the war. And the third one, which obviously hasn't taken place yet, maybe, um, was to pit uh, set uh, Christianity and Islam against each other. Um, you know, I think they've tried to do that, actually, but I don't think they've succeeded and they've, they've maybe moved on. The plans have changed or whatever, because these plans that they come up with, they are sometimes, you know, very, very long term plans, as that one was, but they don't always come to fruition and they do have to change them on the fly sometimes. Yeah. So Titanic's wreck, which, as I, I mentioned, uh, was allegedly discovered by Robert Ballard, had some mysterious unaccounted for thick steel support struts bracing the keel, which were consistent with the alleged repairs to the Olympic after the Hawk incident. And coming back to the the, um, the propeller situation, which I asked you to make a note of, but which I actually remembered, incredibly, um, <laughs> right, the, 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 the opponents of this version of events say um, that, um, no, it's it's proof that it's Titanic down there because the, the there's a clear picture of the propeller, and this is true, with the build number 401 on it, which was Titanic's build number. Olympic's build number was 400. And indeed, the ship at the bottom of the North Atlantic does have a propeller with the build number of 401 on it, but let's not forget that propellers were swapped over from the Titanic. So there's no surprise that it's got the build number 401 on that. Okay. Lots of other stuff I could mention. Um, er, you know, um, yeah. Um, the, the, there's all sorts of things like, you know, was she carrying a billion, a billion pounds in gold bullion? That That's, you know, allegedly part of the truth. And this is why the British Navy was tracking the ship throughout the entirety of its voyage, and it certainly was. There were several British naval vessels tracking uh, Titanic slash Olympic on her maiden voyage. Um, It's, you know, I mean, the other thing is, of course, that it was actually a common scam in those days uh, to switch ship's identities. It 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 was a common insurance fraud that took place so you know this this might sound outrageous to some people who've never come across this idea before but it's not that it's not that ridiculous when you when you when you analyze it thoroughly no uh, it's, it's not it's actually not all that absurd i mean what no. what some people might consider absurd is you know uh imploding buildings for uh <laughs> for insurance purposes so yeah, you know. yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'll just tell another little kind of side story to it as well. Um, there was a guy uh, called Louis Klein, who was a, a it was an Austria Austro-Hungarian national, 
and he was he was a part of the Titanic's crew, uh, and he was a witness as well. But his name, for some strange reason, has been expunged from any crew list. Uh, you know, if you go on the internet and look at Titanic crew list, Lewis Klein's name does not appear. But we know for a fact that he was on there because he um, he was called as a witness at the, uh, in, uh, the American inquiry, which took place a few days after all the survivors landed in New York. And uh, so he was subpoenaed to appear. And they actually put a guard on him because they feared that he would abscond because he was scared for his life, basically. Um, so they put this this guard on on him, and indeed he did manage to evade them, and he escaped. I, well, nobody knows how he got away, but he actually escaped from the hotel where he was being put up, put up, even though there was a guard outside his door. Whether he shinned down a drain pipe or something, but he never he never appeared. But there, we know that he exists because the testimony. Um, uh, there, there is, it gave a written testimony which was in German, which was translated and submitted to the inquiry. And I'll read that out because it's quite interesting. It adds another, it adds another kind of spanner in the works, if you like. But okay, this, this is Lewis Klein's testimony, which I took directly from the inquiry transcript. So I'm not making this up. Okay, I quote, there was a ball following a banquet of some kind going on down below when I went up on watch at 9.30. And the captain and the officers were there with many passengers. After the party, the stewards sent the champagne and wines that were left over to the crew. I know that many of them were drunk. A passenger standing at the rail some, saw something dead ahead, or maybe a little to the starboard, and said, look, quick, see the hill over there. I saw it was a big iceberg and ran for the bridge. The third officer was coming and yelled to me to ask what the matter was. I couldn't stop to answer, I was too excited. I ran for the spa with the crow's nest on it and shouted to the lookout I knew was up there to give the alarm. Not a word did I hear, so I started up the spa. It was less than a minute after I left the promenade deck that I got to the top of the spa and found the lookout, lookouts fast asleep. I rang the alarm bell myself. Lewis Klein. Yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah, I mean, lots of there's lots of other stuff I could cover, um, but it, look, it, it, a, a question that that does come up though is okay. So we are all three ships. Then um, there were three. The one yes. sank. The one sank. The North Atlantic. What happened to the other two? Uh, well, the other two, which was the original Titanic, but which was now named the Olympic, mm. uh, plied its trade across the Atlantic for the, for the next 25 years until it was scrapped in the, the mid-1930s. So it actually uh, carried on sailing? Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, the, 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 the one that was originally named Titanic, which, which swapped its identities mm. with Olympic, so obviously not the Olympic, which was Titanic that sank. I know it gets very confusing, mm. uh, but yeah, you see that. I mean, that's another piece of circumstantial evidence: the fact that the Olympic had been so badly damaged, there was no way if that was the real the real Olympic that was playing its trade across the Atlantic for the next 25 years that it could have done that. The North Atlantic is treacherous, especially in winter. You know, ships get badly damaged just traversing those waters. They don't need to have accidents. You know, the the, the seas can be so fierce and heavy. So. You know, it's highly unlikely that in the condition that it was in, and it was it was declared a wreck. Don't forget, 
um, you know, but that was conveniently forgotten afterwards uh, when they resurrected it from the dead. Um, if it had been so badly damaged that it would be declared a wreck, then there's no way it could have survived so many Atlantic crossings for the next 25 years. It's just, it's just not possible. So, so, so what happened in reality is that they basically took all the paraphernalia that was on the Titanic. Uh, I mean, on the that was supposed to have been on the Titanic. They yeah. switched all the paraphernalia around, the names and everything. Yeah. And exactly. those cameras that have gone down to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Do they? reveal anything interesting no no you can't even see the gash in the ship it's covered in silt it's you know which is rather convenient mm. so we don't really know what that gash consisted of we only have the contemporary reports of the of the of the sailors at that time when you know when the incident happened we don't really know what the extent of the damage is we, we, we can only go by those reports which could be inaccurate so nobody's seen that gash um you know so goodness knows what, Does it even exist? Did that ship go off course? I mean, is, was that was that part of its of its route, or did it go very far off course? Which ship? Sorry, the one that sank. Uh, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it it was actually um, actually they made an error. They made a navigation error. They turned. Um, they turned west, don't forget this, from England, they would be sailing southwest, but they turned west to go horizontally across to New York about 10 miles too early, which put them in the ice field. They could easily have avoided the ice field. They would have known that the ice field was there, but I think they, they, they deliberately steered into it to create an alibi. Uh, so, so, the cap so the captain would have known about the plane? The captain would have known, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Who, just before I, you know... Sure, the, the, sure. The, Let's talk a little bit about the insurance scam. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Right. Titanic cost uh, £2.5 million to build, which was an awful lot of money in those days. You can multiply that by 100. So it's kind of, yeah, whatever. Or perhaps even more. Um, let's not forget the badly damaged Olympic was uninsurable. White Star Line normally insured ships for about 75% of the value. So the payout for Titanic would have been around 1.8 million. Okay. In fact, <laughs> and stop me if you've heard this story before, but the insurance on Titanic was upped the week before the maiden voyage to 3.2 wow. million. Shades of 9/11 and Larry Silverstein and the uh, and the twin towers, perhaps. Gee. Yeah. And this money was paid out within a week of the disaster happening. Uh, you know. <laughs> You know, I mean, these days, if you if you spill red wine on your carpet, you know, you're lucky if you get paid out in six weeks, and then you'll get interrogated. But you know, this this 3.2 million, which is kind of you know pushing on for half a billion these days, uh, was paid out within a week. Can you believe that? Just mm. a coincidence again. Just a coincidence, yeah. yeah. Um, I've got a I've got a very important question for you, John. Sure, do a fire away. Did Leonardo DiCaprio actually drown? <laughs> yeah i think he did actually no he didn't actually froze to death there is a difference and that and this is it's actually it's quite interesting that not a lot of people know this my michael kane impression there but um it, most people didn't drown they actually froze to death because the temperature of the water was minus two degrees centigrade obviously you know it wasn't frozen because salt water freezes at a lower temperature than fresh water and the the uh 
the life expectancy in water of that temperature is four minutes. Yeah, it's not that's not going to last very long. Um, no. I think I think something that's very interesting here is, as you said, the official story is pretty much based on a book and a movie, and it's so long ago that it's difficult to to counter that without extensive research like you have done. Exactly. But what's interesting is that the official story gets embedded into the zeitgeist and becomes almost impossible to uproot. Correct. Yes, exactly. It becomes part of people's psyche, doesn't it? it, it it's just a, it becomes a given, doesn't it? It, it is a given and, it, and it's, you know, it's indisputable. Mm. And of course, this is how they work. This is how the deceivers, you know, not just with the Titanic, but with everything that is done. Um, they make everything so plausible, so deeply ingrained in our consciousness from being kids, which is, you know, obviously what happened with Titanic. And, you know, that you just, you know, without even thinking about it, you just cannot, it's hard to believe that the official story could possibly be a lie. In the 1980s, there was a very, very large group of people in your neck of the woods uh, who believed that they had been to Nelson Mandela's funeral. Oh, okay. right. Okay. Yes. Right. So um, then, then this this kind of, I mean, I, I've experienced the Mandela effect myself, but uh, in, a, in, a, in a different way. But it, it kind of refers to any incident where you could absolutely swear on a stack of Bibles that something was fact, but it actually turns out to be fiction. Mm. And, you know, for, so these people actually believed that Nelson Mandela died in the 1980s and they were actually at his funeral. You know, so th th that's bit, that's been extended now to cover anything like that. And and the and the one that I know and have experienced for myself is my son was a as he was growing up in his teens in the uh, very late nineties. Um, <clears throat> he was a fan of a of a pop band in in England called Chumba Wumba, who had a big hit song. Right? I get knocked down. That's the one. Yeah, you know it. Right. Now, did you know that if you look those that band up now, they have never been called Chumba Wumba. They are called Chumba Wamba. Yeah, uh, as in, not Wamba, as in Wamba. Wamba with an A, not with a U. Yeah. There's no record of them ever being called Chumba Wumba anywhere. And, and the Mandela effect is alleged to be those kind of incidents where somehow history has Gee. been physically changed. And nobody can explain it. They, they talk about it being glitches in reality. They talk about it being glitches in the matrix, for example. Um, and there's a couple of others as well, which have escaped my mind because I've not thought about it for a long time. But there's a couple of others. Oh, one of them is about, you know, the... the um, the Tom Hanks film, what's it, what, what was it called? Um, uh, Forrest Gump. Okay, where he said, there's a famous line in there where he says, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get, all right? Now, when you, when you watch that film now, when you read any transcripts of the words in there, he doesn't say life is like a box of chocolates at all. It says life was like a box of chocolates. It's just absolutely astounding, isn't it? What? These are just very minor. Seriously, these are just very minor instances of the Mandela effect. It's almost as though 
either reality has been deliberately changed or there's been some kind of a glitch in 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 reality. So weird, but that's well, Mandela, I, I, I guess uh, I guess a really big potential example of that is whether or not there really were airplanes on nine eleven. <laughs> Possibly, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's kind a different of. conversation. It, it, is, it is a different conversation, and it's kind of a different situation as well. Um, you know, that that was that's never been a kind of a uh, a generally accepted thing anyway. As it, you know, I questioned that right from the off, for example. Right. So it's not like everybody knew that that was the case. You know, whereas with the Mandela effect, that's what it's meant to be. Mm. If you look it up on the internet, you'll see lots of examples of it. You know, I would advise anybody to look it up. It's, it's fascinating. Nobody can explain it, but there are several things like that. So, going back to the Titanic, if yeah. if if we were to paraphrase it into um, one paragraph, wow, <laughs> it would be, it it would be that the Titanic was switched for possible insurance claims as well yep. as uh, opposition to the creation of the Federal Reserve. Yep. Yep. And what else? Well, what? I mean, that's a, that's a reasonable summary of it. Um, uh, and, you know, it's not... The, 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 these, this, these, these kind of things happen all the time. Um, you know, we are told a completely different story to what is the actual truth because it's part of an agenda that they don't want us to know about. And, uh, you know, it's, it's as simple as. Um, and they have the money and the power to do it, and, and they don't hesitate to use those tactics whenever they want. You know, you, you mentioned 9-11. That's another great example of that kind of thing. You know, the official story of 9-11 is very different to the reality, as we all mm. know. Mm. So where can I find and follow you? Okay, good question. Right, well, I've got a, first of all, I've got a BitChute channel. Uh, which is if you go to BitChute, use the search bar and key in John Hamer official, three separate words. <clears throat> okay, so that's my BitChute channel. There are lots of uh, podcasts on there. Um, if you go to my website, which is falsificationofhistory.co.uk, uh, there are lots of articles on there, hundreds of articles on there that I've written over the years. There are also hundreds of podcasts, links to hundreds of podcasts on there that I've done over the years, and this will join them when uh, you know when it's uh, when it's completed. Um, uh, you can go to my Amazon page, uh, you know, wherever about wherever in the world you are, go to your local Amazon uh, page and key in my name, John Hamer, and it will bring up a list of my books. Um, do you want me to just briefly tell tell the listeners what my books are? Sure. The first one was Falsification of History, which was, which I wrote in 2012. The second one was RMS Olympic, which has been the subject of this discussion. The third one was Titanic's Last Secret, which is a novel based on RMS Olympic. The third, uh, sorry, the fourth one and the fifth one were, were Behind the Curtains, Volume 1 and 2, which is a massive expose of the truth behind what's really going on in the world. Uh, number six was... JFK, a very British coup, in which I t have a completely unique take on the JFK assassination and talk about how it was a British planned coup. The seventh one was Falsification of Science, which was published last year, and it's kind of a sister book to the falsification of history, you know, detailing how science is deliberately falsified 
to further a very insidious agenda. And the uh, eighth one uh, was is welcome to the masquerade, which is an expose of what's been going on for the last two and a half years. Um, and that was published uh, in April this year. So, yeah. That's I, think about you're it. Gonna, I think you're going to have to come back to my show. I'd be absolutely delighted to come back. You, John Amber, thank you for joining me in the trenches. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Don't go anywhere. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.